0: Look with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I'm just going to read the whole chapter and then we'll go back through it. Okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter 4, pretty short chapter, uh, 16 verses, starting in verse 1. He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those whom those who come after, come later, will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Alright, well, when sin entered the world, it fractured, as we know, our relationship with God, right? That is part of the meta-narrative, the story of the Bible. But it also fractured our relationship with one another. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, you have a passage riddled with that brokenness. You know, when Adam and Eve, you go back to the Garden of Eden, when they sinned and they bit of that fruit and took of that tree that God said you shall not eat of, they didn't just hide from God. They did hide from God, right? But they didn't just hide from God. Some other things changed. Uh, they clothed themselves. They uh, cast blame. You remember Adam actually blamed Eve for his sin. And it really almost a quite humorous, if it wasn't so sad, humorous scene kind of transposes there after that happens is they're trying to hide from God, they're trying to clothe themselves, they're blaming the devil, they're blaming each other and and it's just a picture for us of the fact that there is a vertical brokenness that takes place when sin enters the world between God and man but there is also a horizontal brokenness that takes place when sin takes place when sin entered the world between man and just man fellow man but god created us from the very beginning to live in harmony with him and others right we know that he created his creation said it's good and he put them in a perfect place with perfect community because God lives in perfect community, right? Within Himself, within the Trinity, He lives in perfect community. And so He invites us to live in community with Him and He creates us for for fellowship with Him and to worship Him. Not because He needs us, just because He wants to. And He creates us to worship Him. And and then sin comes in. It ruptures that relationship and that community, but it also ruptures the community that we have here on earth. Jesus comes along in the New Testament And he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he points them to the Shema. He points them back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. And he says, the greatest commandment is to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says, the second greatest commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus ranked them. right? Love God with all your... He said, that's the greatest. He said, there was a greatest. And he said, there's a second greatest. So Jesus ranked them, so we keep them ranked. God comes first. Above and beyond everything else, we're to love God supremely more than anyone else that ever will or ever has lived. But Jesus also linked them, because he said the second one is like it. So they're, they're, they're linked. There's a link there that you cannot break. In other words, we are to love our neighbor as ourself, and our love for God will manifest itself in love for neighbor. But sin has entered the world, and so we neither love God appropriately on our own, nor love our neighbor well. And life is never all it could be unless we're both reconciled to God vertically and reconciled to others horizontally. And in this text we see a lot of topics, right? It just seems kind of random at times. But they're linked by horizontal brokenness when you really look at the text. And there are four sections that show some form of brokenness, and that's kind of how we're going to walk through this morning. I want to walk through those four sections to show the kind of this brokenness in this world horizontally. But then there's this picture of a better way and the way that we're invited to live. So the first we see is in the first three verses there, we see this picture of a world full of oppression. So that's the first thing we see. He says that he sees oppressions done under the sun and the tears of the oppressed and there's no one to comfort them and and the, the power's in the hand of the oppressor. And oppression there, he's talking about abuse. It's someone in power abusing someone without power. So you see that manifest in our world today through abusive governments. Through an abusive spouse, through an abusive employer, through an abusive system or whatever it, governmental system or whatever it may be it 's when things are unjust or unfair, or just anytime someone happens to get a hold of some power and they use whatever power that may be, whether it 's financial or, or physical or whatever it may be, to abuse the other person it 's a bully, and we have a lot of bullies in our world today, and nobody likes a bully, you know? so he 's So down as he looks at this and thinks on this, he thinks those who have gone on and don't have to see all this anymore are better off. But he says, better off than they are those that have never lived, never been born. He's in other words, he's just overwhelmed. He's just down, and you know, you're like, oh man, I can't believe that's in the Bible. Well, that's just man. He's just being real, all right. And uh, he's just laying it all right there on the table, and he's saying, life is hard. Life is difficult. And times we look around this world that can be very beautiful at times, and at times it's very ugly. And he's just being clear about that. And he says, Twice, they had no one to comfort them. They're oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. When you see repetition in your Bible in a small section, you need to underline that and realize that's for emphasis. And so when you read that passage, if you take nothing else away from those first three verses, you should grab hold of the fact that he says there's no one there to comfort them. Because he points that out twice and then it's linked throughout the loneliness and kind of the aloneness you see in much of the rest of chapter 4. Of the horizontal brokenness, the oppression and people going without comfort. It's a sad three verses, but the saddest part in a way is the loneliness of those who are hurting. And we know we live in a broken world full of suffering. It's a world full of corrupt governments and starving people and a world full of terrorism. In a time like this, he looks and he seems heartbroken that in the midst of a broken world that people would be without a comforter. You know, when you love someone and they're hurting, the first thing you want to do is... It's to comfort them. That's the first thing you want to do, right? So when I'm a father, right? I have two small children, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and and something happens to one of them and they fall down and skin their knee or they fall off the couch and bump their head or whatever and they're crying and they're squalling. I don't walk by and say, hey, shake it off, kid. You know, no, you know. Ten, twelve more years, maybe. But not right now, right? Right now you pick them up and you hug them and you kiss them and you try to make them stop crying as quickly as possible, right? Especially the one-year-old. We want comfort. And that Hebrew word for comfort can mean to regret, to be sorry, to pant, to groan, to lament, to grieve in the Hebrew. One Hebrew dictionary said it carries the sense of a person who commiserates with someone who has had misfortune. Commiserate. What does that word sound like? Co-misery, right? To, To share in someone's pain can be comforting to someone. To know they're not alone in their struggle. One of the things you can do in a season like our city is in, for instance, is just simply grieve with the city. Letting others in our city know that they're not in this alone. First, we see this world is full of oppression. And then we see that people are going without comfort. And that's the first picture He gives us here in these first three verses. But there's more. Verse 4, it's a world full of envy. He says, the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. He says, I look around and I see a lot of hard work. Right? I, I see people going to work every day and working long hours, getting up early, going to bed late, man, punching the clock. And you'd think he would look at that and say, man, I see all the toil, and all the skill and the work going into the world. And I think, wow, way to go guys, you know. Working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Whatever. You know, you think he'd break into a country song when he says that. But he doesn't. He kind of sounds depressed again. He says, but it all comes from the envy of a man's neighbor. In other words, he says, I look, he says, I look out and I see all your hard work and he says, here's the thing, I know why you go to work. And it's not good news, according to him. He says, it's out of envy. So instead of being wild by our work ethic, he's grieved by our envy. Envy is simply wanting what someone else has and even wanting them not to have it, many times. It manifests itself in comparison and competition, right? Sizing ourselves up next to The Joneses, so to speak. If the Joneses are here, I'm sorry. Um, Sizing ourselves up next to the Joneses, right? And then comparing our lifestyle to their lifestyle and then competing with them. And he says that motivates a lot of what we call work, you know. Why why does a 16-year-old want a Mercedes? Or a convertible? And not just any car many times. Why, Why, when I was a kid, was it not enough for me just to have tennis shoes? I begged for Air Jordans, right? Was it because that was the most comfortable shoe on the planet and it would last longer than any other shoe? No, it's because somebody else had those shoes and I wanted to look as cool as they did. It was envy, and envy drives a lot of the things we do. It can drive, it can drive the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the houses we build, the vacations we go on, the money we spend, the money we save, the, lot, the hours we work, and that's what it's always pointing out. I'm not saying that's the case for everybody in the room. He's just saying in our fallen nature, that's a big deal that drives and what keeps the world going around. In our economic system. You know, some people overwork and then they brag about overwork. Sometimes we tell ourselves, well, I have to do that because I'm the provider for my family. Or my job simply needs me. Maybe you do. I know the world's not a fair place and I know work's not always fair. But Ecclesiastes says, make sure we check our heart. Many times we do what we do not for the good intentions we say we do. Many times it's out of envy. And on Father's Day of all days, let me remind you dads that your greatest contribution to your family is not your income. It's a contribution. You are a provider, but you're a whole lot more than that. In verse 5, he says, you know, so some people look at that and the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So he says, don't look out at this broken system and this broken world and just say, well, I just won't go to work. That's what he's saying about folding your hands. He says, no, you'll devour yourself. Laziness is not the answer. Overwork is not the answer. What's the answer? Verse 6, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Contentment is the answer. Contentment and rest. You're better off with a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. Be content, learn to rest, work hard, rest hard, and be satisfied with what God provides for you. But notice what started the problem. What started His rant in verses 4-6. through Envy. Yeah, that's a vertical problem between you and God because you're not satisfied with how the Lord chooses to provide for you. But it's also a horizontal problem because you can't love the one you envy. Envy will kill relationships. It will destroy friendships. It kills love. It erodes at the friendship level. Envy is the cancer of friendship. It will shade how you view people. You'll say things like, oh, I can't stand being around them. They think they're better than us. Do they? Or do you? All they do is talk about their stuff. Do they? Or is that all you can think about? Right? Envy clouds our judgment. Maybe that person is that way, or maybe we're that way. That's all I'm saying. Unfortunately, we live in a world where instead of pursuing God-honoring relationships with others, many times we tend to envy others. Right? We all struggle with it to various degrees, and envy kills relationships. It's one of the enemies to the life He's calling us to, starting in verse 9. And then in verse 7, we find out that we live in a world full of selfish greed. I see another vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. And he never asks, for whom am I pulling and depriving myself of pleasure? See, here's a person alone and isolated. He has no family, yet he works like a dog. Why? Because his eyes are never satisfied with his riches. He doesn't have time for family. He doesn't have time for friends. He only has time to get more stuff. This guy is so busy being greedy, he never stops and asks who he's going to share all that he's accumulated with. He's only doing it for himself, but he's too busy to notice. You know, greedy people rarely realize they're greedy. And lonely people, many times, don't stop long enough to realize they're lonely. And this person, they just don't have time for others. Relationships take time. And time for this person is money. This is the guy that dies... It has the golden casket, right? The the, the crystal headstone, right? Uh, the big cathedral wedding and it gets the front page of the Orlando Sentinel and does all this magnificent things and then I show up to do His funeral and I'm the only one there. It's just me and the blackbirds, right? Because there was no time for relationships. There was no people. There was only accumulation. And this is the world we live in, a world with oppression where people with power hurt others without it. A world full of envy that may mask itself sometimes as hard work and a world full of selfish greed where people can be enamored with riches that they don't even, so enamored with riches that they don't realize they lack meaningful, lack meaningful relationships. But verses 13 through 16, let's skip ahead, show us that it's also a world full of foolish pride. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Why is the key old king foolish? He no longer knew how to take advice. He'd become Old and foolish, and the Bible says, right, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Now, he wasn't always this way. It seems as some commentators have suggested that verse 14 is about the old king as well. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. He was once young and grown up from poverty to be king. But power sometimes isolates, and it becomes hard for him to take advice from others because, well, he thinks he knows everything. It's a horizontal problem. The Bible says there is, like I said, wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So that's why he is foolish, as he says. But if you're not willing to listen to godly counsel, that's an evidence this morning that we lack wisdom. And it's not only a vertical, but it's also a horizontal problem. We don't value others enough to think that God might use them in our life to teach us something. Then in verses 15 and 16, in the end we find out the young king, the author looks and sees him with all the people to lead. No end to them, he says but he's not rejoiced in at the end there's no remembrance of him in other words wisdom and advancement for the sake of wisdom and advancement as we as we've seen throughout ecclesiastes is pointless you're better off poor and wise than as a foolish king because in the end being a king is going to fade your influence is going to fade And all of these passages are linked by those horizontal issues. Oppression, envy, selfish greed, foolish pride that fails to seek counsel from others. We live in a world where both the vertical and the horizontal relationship has been ruptured, if you will, by sin. And so people go looking for things and things that don't offer life. They go looking for life in money. They go looking for life in jobs or advancement or pleasure. And people commit and experience oppression and envy their neighbor and instead of loving them, They live in selfish greed and they don't make time for community and for others and serving others. And many times when they become really successful, they simply just stop listening to others as the foolish king did. Look at our own local headlines. Terrorism, murder. Why are these things so? Because we live in a world full of brokenness. And this world is too cruel to do it alone. You need God, but you need people. And these things we've seen as evidence of brokenness can also prevent us from having the relationships we need. Did you think about that? You can't hurt and use and abuse others, verses 1-3, through and have community with them. You can't envy and love. You'll only compare and compete and root against other people. That doesn't serve anyone but yourself. You can't be obsessed with more and have real community because you'll choke out all your time and community takes time to get more. You can't be someone that won't ever listen to others and have relationships because no one will want to be around you. Right? We have to be willing to repent of the sins that isolate us and drive others away from us and to pursue Christ-centered relationships. There's a way to do life that isolates and a way to do life that connects. And in verses, these other verses, he's showing us the way to do life that isolates. Here is the way to do life that connects. Verses 9 through 12. Two, he says, are better than one. This is the better way. The premise he's making here in the opening statement, two are better than one, is that life is better when we do it together. Community is better than isolation. Relationship is better than loneliness, right? You're better off playing rummy than solitaire all the time. It's kind of this is the point, right? Don't just sit around. He's saying, Listen, you, you need community. We need you're made for that. And in the church we should know this because the church is all about community. Jesus didn't only die to save you from your sins, He died and made you a part of a community. You are in a blood-bought community if you're a child of God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 19. It's a little lengthy, it's on the screen for you this morning. I want to read it. Important verses for us, I think, today. For He Himself, Christ Himself, is our peace, who has made us both one this is talking about Jew and Gentile, right He's speaking to the situation where all the world could be divided into two groups: Jews and Gentiles, either a Jew or not a Jew, and uh, in, biblically speaking. And he says, "So Jesus is our peace. He made us, both Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in our ordinances in, in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's saying there is a unity that takes place around the cross of Jesus Christ and all those who come to faith in Him are united as one body, the church. You are in a blood-bought house of God, blood-bought community united in Christ. I recently heard this illustrated this way. When you think about the cross, right? And I don't have one up here, but just imagine that in your mind. That's a pretty easy thing. And we got one beam right here. You can stare at this big beam, right? And so you've got one big vertical beam and you've got one big horizontal beam when you think about the cross. And Jesus' death on the cross, we all know and we all think about the fact that it vertically through faith in Him reconciles us to God, right? So think about that big vertical beam stretching up towards the sky and how Jesus died to reconcile every man and woman and boy and girl who will believe in Him to God, right? To make us right with God so our sins can be taken away, forgiven and we can have a, a, a whole be born again and have a new and fresh restored relationship with God. But there's also a horizontal beam on the cross, and Ephesians 2 and other passages like it point us to the fact that through the cross there's also a horizontal reconciliation that takes place because Jesus purchased a people. He didn't just die for you. He died for people, right? A plurality died for sinners. Right? And all those who place their faith in Him come around Him and become a community in Him. And so He he reconciles us, yes, vertically to God, but horizontally to one another. And He has paved the way for the fact that one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where, yes, we will walk with God and there will be no sin and nothing to prevent us from fellowshipping perfectly with God, but we will also perfectly fellowship and live in community with one another. Sometimes people ask me, well, I know so and so in heaven. Will I'll be able to recognize so and so in heaven. I, if they're in heaven and you're in heaven, yes. You're not gonna, you're gonna know them better in heaven. You understand that? Jesus died not just to forgive our sins, but to make us one. And to make us a community, we're not gonna get to heaven and go it alone all of a sudden. Right? We're not going to get to heaven and all of a sudden it's just us and God. He didn't expect us to live us that way down here. We're not going to live that way up there. You're going to, I believe you're going to know more people in heaven. We're going to spend all of eternity getting to know people and spending time with people. So the cross reconciles us vertically, but it also reconciles us horizontally. And every believer is immediately placed into not just a vertical relationship with God, but a new horizontal relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ. And spiritually, every believer in Christ is linked through him, that one body. So let me ask you this morning do you need comfort like those in verses 1 through 3? Do you struggle with comparison and competition like the person in verses 4 and 6? Do you need companionship like the person in verses 7 and 8? Do you need counsel like the foolish king in verse 13? What you need is community. What you need is Christ-centered, rich relationships. Now, two things. As the church, we are to be a community, but we're also a community within a community, right? We are to seek to serve for the prosperity of our city. We are the city on a hill that lights the way for others, Jesus said. Light of the world. You cannot set a city on a hill. We preached this just a few weeks ago. Um, It gives light to the whole area. So, we're to practice community. We're to model community. And we are to offer community. We practice it by loving and serving one another inside the church and by together loving and serving a hurting world. We, By doing this, we model for the world what it looks like to do life in community, to do life the better way, as Ecclesiastes says. To do life together the way God intended it to be done. We are supposed to be the world's clearest picture of the way God intends for society to function. And we offer community by loving and serving our neighbor and sharing with them how through Christ they can be reconciled to God and brought into his family. So why is this way better? He says it's better. Two are better than one. Well, he says, first of all, he says because there's a reward. There's a reward for their toil. Simply put, you get more out of working together than going it alone. This week, you guys afforded me to be able to go to the Southern Baptist Convention and take Christy, uh, with me. And thank you for that. And, you know, I could have went alone. I I could have went through a long layover and plane issues in Minneapolis alone. Um, I could have ate lunch, eaten lunch and eaten dinner and breakfast and all those sort of things alone. I could could have sat in a room full of Baptists alone. Um, I, I could have done all those things alone, but there were more laughs. There was more fun. There was a greater reward. Together. Think about any road trip you've went on. Think about working in your yard. Think about your job, right? Is it better isolated? Or is it better with others when it's functioning correctly, right? He says "There's just it's just a greater reward. Life is better together. But there's also help, he says. He says, if you fall down, there's someone there to lift you up. But woe to the person who falls down and there's no one there to lift you up. The point is, life is hard. The journey is hard. You're going to fall down. And at some point, you're going to need someone else to be there to pick you up. Some of you know what it's like, for instance, to be in a financially difficult spot and for someone to lovingly lend you a hand. Just this week, thousands of people in our city donated blood. I was away and I got to see the pictures on social media. Thousands of people, I think I heard like over 50,000 people at one point, giving blood in a short amount of time. And that's the benefit of when community is, is done right. And when you link our, and you help one another. Someone's down, you lift them up. It's, it's a small thing, but it's something we can do. But he also says there's comfort when you live life this way. He says two can lie down together and keep warm, but the person that's by themselves is cold. Now, this is not some shady Bible verse, okay? This is, that's not what this is about. This is like two people on a journey in a cold desert night, and together they can stay warm, much warmer than they could if they were apart. He, but he's speaking here, I believe, of, he's illustrating for us the, the theme of companionship or of, of comfort, really. The comfort of companionship. you know, cold days are certain in our world. But in the church, and through the church, comfort should be a certainty in those cold days. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 should be on the screen for you this morning. The Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, you need to live in community so you can both experience the comfort and so you can share the comfort. See, God comforts us and then He enables us to take that and use it to comfort others. In other words, don't waste your trial. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your comfort that God comforted you with and that others comforted you with. You're supposed to pay it forward. You're supposed to go and you're supposed to comfort someone else. That's the way the Lord works in the church. So in sickness and in death and in grieving and in abandonment or disappointment, someone comes alongside to comfort you with the comfort with which they were comforted by God Himself. But then He gives us a, a fourth thing here. He says strength. Alone you may be defeated, He says, but not with two. And especially, He says, a threefold cord is not easily broken. The world is a difficult place and Satan would love to destroy and to devour you. And community and Christ-centered relationships fortify you so you are strong and more protected against the enemy. Let me ask you, who do you think is more likely to fail morally? The person in deep, rich, Christ-centered community or the person doing it alone? Either one can fall. But there is no doubt that the isolated person is much weaker. Who is more likely to get stuck spiritually? The person in community or the person isolated and doing it all. It can happen to both. But one person has a much higher rate. See, we need relationships because we need people to say, hey, I got your back. Hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, here's what I've learned in situations like that. Hey, here's how I coped when I went through such and such. Hey, I'll listen to you. Hey, how are you doing? And so on and so forth. There is a strength in numbers is what he's pointing to. And for all these reasons, you need to be in and pursuing Christian friendships and relationships and community one-on-one and within your local church. You should be in a small group and all those sort of things. You should be going to meals together and hanging out together and having friendships. And your experience of Christian community should go beyond the one hour and 15 minutes that you're in this room on Sunday morning. This is not enough. And with recent events in our city, you might ask, well, what's the church's role in a time like this? Well, we're a community within a greater community, right? Who are modeling, who are practicing, and who are offering community to others. So we offer help, right? We're there to lend a hand. People in our city are down and we need to be there and help lift them up when we can. So we give blood and so we pray and so we do whatever it is we can do to help. Our children's ministry this morning, making get well cards and things for those in the hospital. People serving there encouraging them. This little things is all we can really... Right? We're just doing whatever it is we can do. Comfort. We offer comfort. People need to know we see them at a time like this. That we hurt with them. That they are our neighbor. People made in the image of God. That we value them. We offer strength in our numbers. We can't unite with people over everything. We know that. We can't unite with everybody in our city over every little thing. and We can't do that. We're not even meant to do that. Christ in His Word gets our ultimate allegiance. We know that. But at the same time, He calls us to love our neighbor. And His Word calls us to be good citizens and to serve our city and to strive for the prosperity of our city and to love every neighbor in our city. There's a way to do life that you kind of forget or hardly notice what happened last week and quickly move past it. And there's a way to do life that doesn't see hurting people that you pass by every day on the street. But he's saying there is a better way, and Christ has placed us in that better way. And as the church of Jesus, we have a responsibility to be who we are in Christ, where we are at that time. Now, what are the ways we're going to model this this week? Wednesday night, June 22nd at 7 p.m. This Wednesday night, you've got a insert in your bulletin because this happened after the bulletin was printed, so we had to insert it. You should have one of these Wednesday night, uh, June twenty second at seven p.m. We're going to join for an hour of prayer at Glenridge Middle School with our brothers and sisters in Christ at uh, Lake Baldwin Church here in Baldwin Park. We're they're one of the only other they're the only other church that gathers actually inside Baldwin Park. We're the only two churches inside the community that gather inside the community. And we're inviting the community to come together in prayer. This is one of those situations where two churches are better than one, right? So there's my verse. So if you'll come together, that's, my, that's our request. And so I'm assuming Mike Tilly, the pastor over there this morning, is in inviting his people. And so we're going to come together over at Lake Baldwin Church and we're going to pray for our city. And we're inviting all those in Baldwin Park that would like to come and pray to do so. But our churches... The churches that God has placed in Ball and Park are going to lead the way in that. So we would invite you, whether you live in Ballin Park or not, to come together with us as a church, uh, and as two churches uh, coming together to pray and agree uh, for our city and ask for God to do a work in the lives of those who are hurting and for the gospel to go forth and for the strength of the church. And so we're putting that together this week, and I hope you'll come and be involved in that. 7 o'clock Wednesday night at Glen Ridge Middle School. Now, This morning, maybe you've been beat up by a cruel world and need comfort. Maybe you've been living a life of envy and greed. Maybe you are without the most important relationship, the most important friendship you can have, and that is with God. You know, the Bible teaches we're very simply either family with God or we're enemies of God. There's not any middle ground. You're a son, a daughter, or an enemy. And that's the beauty of the cross is that Jesus takes us from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. You know, the good news of the Bible, let me show you how the gospel weaves in this passage. The son of God was born into this world and never sinned, not vertically against God and not horizontally against man. And we know any sin against man is also a sin against God, but he didn't sin against man. He didn't sin against God and his life was lived perfectly, both vertically and horizontally. But He was oppressed. Those with power wrongfully accused Him and murdered Him on a cross. Now we know He willingly laid down His life and no one took Him from it. But from the human perspective, He was murdered and falsely accused and oppressed by those in power. He was forsaken. Left alone. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He was forsaken so you and I can be accepted. He was cast out so you and I can be brought in. He was disconnected so you and I can be connected. And He died alone on a cross so you and I will never have to be alone. And so my first question for you this morning is, have you been reconciled to God through Jesus? Do you have that relationship? Have you turned from your sin and embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you invited Him into your life? Have you surrendered your life to Him? I can think of all kinds of different ways to say say it, but have you genuinely believed on Jesus and trusted Him for eternal life? Trusting in only Him, His death, His resurrection to pay for your sins. Is your vertical relationship with God right? And Christian? Are you living out horizontally what we claim to have vertically? As those who have been reconciled to God, are we seeking and are we living out in reconciliation of our, obviously, our brothers and sisters in Christ and our fellow men? Maybe this morning we need to repent of cruelty or oppression or not comforting or envy or selfish greed or foolish pride or any of those sins that we've run through this morning in this passage. And maybe today we need to just kind of choose again to say, you know what, I'm going to commit myself by God's grace, by the help of His Spirit to pursue living in community, to pursue deep Christian friendship and community and to pursue being a part of that community that's within our community. That reaches out to our community and models for our community what it looks like or what it should look like to be reconciled to God. And to give them... You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why we're here. They should experience from the church a taste, a foretaste. We are the salt, right? We we should flavor the world in such a way that when they come in contact with us and when they're served by us and when they're reached out by us and when they're loved by us, it gives them a taste of what it could be like, what it should be like, and so that we, we don't repel them, but we pull them towards as much as we can towards Christ. If they're going to be offended, it should be by the gospel. It's offensive enough don't want anybody to be offended by me or my my behavior or something I say. If they're going to be offended this morning, I want them to be offended over the fact that I'm telling them that a Jewish carpenter that died 2,000 years ago rose from the dead and he's their only hope of heaven. That's strange enough for some years to hear without enough other stuff from me or from you or from anybody else. So let's do this this morning. Let's pray together. I'm going to advise the worship team to come back up. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ, if you don't have a relationship with